0: We laugh, we cry, we learn, but really, what doesn't kill you makes you better at managing clients and everyone. I'm Morgan Friedman, and this is Client Horror Stories. Hey everyone! Welcome to the latest edition of Client Horror Stories. Tonight, I'm excited to have a special episode, different than all previous ones, because this one is not about a client, despite going against the branding of the name, but um, but about the story of a nonprofit that uh, turns very challenging and um. As we go through this story, we're going to get out a bunch of lessons and details that definitely apply to working with any client or boss. Mark Jacobson, it's great to have you tonight.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Um, let's jump in. I think a good starting point is if you uh, start by uh, telling us the adventure story that I read all about in your book last night, and you listeners should also.
1: Yeah, thanks. So. Um... Just by way of introduction, I am an Air Force officer who's also an entrepreneur, still on active duty, but I've done a lot of entrepreneurial things. And the book that Morgan referenced is one I just released titled Eating Glass, The Inner Journey Through Failure and Renewal, which is part memoir, but it's also partly a guide to help people who are navigating the aftermath of a, a brutal failure experience, which I'm sure we'll get into. It's something that we don't necessarily talk about enough. So my story begins in 2013, 2014. I was a C-17 pilot in the Air Force, which if you've been following the news in Afghanistan, these are the cargo planes that are trying to evacuate people. So they're they're long distance cargo planes. And my job was to move cargo and people in war zones. I am also a Middle East specialist. I spent a couple of years learning Arabic, living in Jordan. I earned a master's degree in conflict resolution there. And I've always had an interest academically and personally in civil wars. So my story started in 2013, 2014 timeframe when the Syrian civil war had started. It was an absolutely brutal conflict, a peaceful uprising that became violent, particularly as the regime uh, attacked its own people. And I was in Eastern Turkey doing research among Syrian refugees for uh, a degree program when the Syrian government started starving out entire cities as a means of breaking their will. And I was meeting people who had survived sieges, who had loved ones inside, starving, uh, just horrific news. And people would ask me as a cargo pilot, why doesn't the United States go in and deliver aid? You can do whatever you want. You're the Air Force. And speaking as an Air Force pilot, the honest answer is, no, we can't go wherever we want, especially in the middle of a hot war zone. Uh, Big cargo planes get shot down unless we launch a whole war to fight our way in, which we weren't at war in Syria. But that got me thinking, surely in the 21st century, there must be a way to get some aid into besieged areas. And I couldn't let that thought go. I felt an obligation as a C-17 pilot, as someone who spoke Arabic, who knew the region, who was studying the war to try and think about how we could do this. And to make a long story short, I had an idea of using large numbers of small drones to swarm small packets of aid in. So the image in my mind was like a conveyor belt, just delivering parcels, or maybe an army of ants stealing a picnic lunch. And uh, you could get a little bit of aid in over and over and over and potentially feed a city, or if nothing else, at least get in high value, uh, low mass goods like medicine, baby milk, whatever it might be. So I spent a couple years building a nonprofit around this idea. All I had was my own resources. I was bootstrapping with my own money, building in my garage, learning about radio control airplanes and drones and autopilots and reaching out through my networks to find volunteers. It was a very scrappy grassroots effort, but we did manage to bootstrap it. We started building the technology. We built drones. We did have a lot of success. We built drones that could fly hundred kilometers, deliver packages. We did a major event in California where we trained Syrian Iraqi refugees, how to operate our planes. We had families building parachutes and packing boxes and really showed that this paradigm could work. And we did that in the United States. Our next step was to try and get to Turkey uh, adjacent to Syria, where we hoped to replicate this demo and demonstrate that everything was ready to go. If we could just get the right legal permissions, we could get the first drones over the border. Now, as you can imagine, this is an incredibly complex project, very early nascent drone technology. It was politically complex. It was legally complex. So we had to fight a ton of battles to get this far. and We were badly burned out, but we kept trying. Uh, we knew that the sieges would be moving north to Aleppo near Turkey. And we were trying to prepare for that moment. Uh, but we came to a make or break moment where right after we did this major event in California, we, we were broke, we were you know bootstrapped, we needed money. And there was gonna be this really nice BBC documentary coming out about our project. And we would have one shot to raise money. So we decided to do a crowdfunding campaign where we would launch it at the same time that the BBC story broke, we would try and ride that publicity wave and get not just the funding, but the political support that we needed. And we kind of bet everything on that campaign because it was our our one shot. And I was very nervous about launching a crowdfunding campaign, given that we could not guarantee how this would turn out. Uh, This wasn't like delivering a book or an app or something. We were trying to access a a war zone uh, in a very complex war. But we did it anyway. We ran the crowdfunding campaign, and right around the time that was coming together, the wheels started to come off. Um, Our volunteer team was badly burned out, me most of all. Uh, Our lead engineer was in the same boat. We'd expended a lot of our resources. We were largely Stanford students. This happened while I was at Stanford uh, earning a PhD. So we were trying to hold it all together And then the war got considerably worse. The rise of the Islamic State really changed the political dynamics and the optics. There was very little will to do humanitarian work in Syria. Turkey got increasingly dangerous very quickly. And then in July, uh, a couple months after the crowdfunding campaign, we actually crashed a drone at Stanford in a dry lake bed called Lake Lagunita and started a brush fire that burned three acres of Stanford and very nearly escaped and became a wildfire. So we, we got that contained, the fire department did. We were very lucky it wasn't worse, but that fire sort of symbolically represented the implosion of our effort. Um, after that, our back was broken, if you will. We had a very difficult time trying to get moving again. We realized this just wasn't going to happen, but we had all this crowdfunded money sitting in our bank account. We had all these pledges and promises we had tried to make in good faith. And for me in the leadership seat, I had to figure out how do I continue leading an organization that is failing if it has not already failed. And for me, that set in motion a very difficult season of my life of severe burnout, of stress, of uh, feeling like we'd failed and let people down and trying to navigate that experience while still leading the team responsibly shutting down the organization Uh, And then finding my way forward again in the year or two after that, when everything I had poured so much into with my team uh, had come to an end. And that's largely the journey that I talk about in my book is when you are an entrepreneur and you have led something like this and poured your heart and soul into it and it doesn't work out, uh, how do you move through that time and how do you get going again?
0: It's um, it's a power, It's a powerful story, even more powerful in the in the book where where each of these moments that you, allied over in one sentence, just is uh, is in excruciating in excruciating detail.
1: <laughs> yeah, excruciating uh, is probably about right. I don't want that to turn you off because it's a redemptive story. I hope, but it was a very difficult season of my life, and it's I think it's a common experience for entrepreneurs when you talk to people who have. Led a startup through failure. You know, some people just seem to it bounces off, but there's a subset of people who it, it strikes them like the death of a loved one. It's, it's a traumatic experience.
0: And even for the people where it seems to just bounce them off uh, or bounce off of them, the rubber people, it turns out humans aren't rubber. So they seem sort of people, in my experience, are the people who are fine, but then five years later, it all comes out and then have some form of post of delayed post-traumatic stress syndrome.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. And when I talk to people about this, what I tell them is if you don't do the work to process that, it will become kind of a shadow that follows you around. It's going to affect you in ways that you might not even understand. It can affect your family. It could affect your leadership style, how you go into your next venture, So sooner or later, that bill will come due, and I just encourage people to to do the work of processing through those experiences, number one, to avoid that shadow haunting you, but also because when you face it and when you grapple with it, you can actually really grow through that experience. Uh, How we learn to process those things can teach us practical lessons, but can also really enrich us as people, helping us understand ourselves, our strengths, our weaknesses, how we lead, how we deal with challenge. And for me, it was a very difficult time, but it's also a very fruitful time.
0: Yes, that makes sense. So one question that I kept on wondering as I read your book last night was the following. If you had to redo that experience, what would you have done differently in order to manage a lot of the different situations and,
1: um, and, and characters di- uh, differently? That's a great question. And it's challenging because this was a crazy project from the beginning. Yes. This, was a, this was a moonshot, right? And yes. we celebrate moonshot thinking. We read inspirational books about it and excite ourselves about it and tell people to go pursue their dreams and change the world. But the reality is, is that when you pursue a moonshot and you give it everything you have, you create kind of a dangerous situation with a high risk of burnout because you're fueling this thing on your passion, on your energy, on your love. And when it crashes and burns, you've got a lot of yourself wrapped up in that. If it crashes and burns, I should say, but I'm not sure if you could pursue a moonshot any other way. So you know, I sometimes ask myself, well, was it foolish to try this at all? This was always a long shot. Um, was it, was it wise to just invest every waking hour in a project like this while I was still, you know, a Stanford student and dealing with my family? Um, and I don't know, you know, I, I, uh, I think to some degree it was always going to take a lot out of me to try this. With that said, I think there's some things I could have done differently. We talk a lot about things like um setting healthy boundaries maintaining healthy lifestyles i think anyone who's doing entrepreneurial work that's an important lesson and it's very easy to discount health balance so I, yeah
0: let's let's dive into that a bit i like your phrase to set healthy boundaries but like let's like let's be specific in that like in the entrepreneurs or the nonprofit founders journey what are some boundaries that, that that for example you let you think that it might have made sense to have, um, to have said and by the way, what makes it challenging is exactly your comment from two minutes ago that to do a moonshot you put yourself in and you put your heart in, which is fundamentally uh, the destruction of the boundaries. so so the real world question is how do you how do you balance the two?
1: Yeah. So I think there's, there's kind of a more inner soul level of this. There's also more pragmatic day-to-day level. At that inner soul level, somehow we have to recognize that we are not our work and we have to be okay having an identity outside that. And that if the work doesn't succeed, that we can still have our identity. And that's hard to do because we put so much of ourselves into this thing. And, and that's just, I think, something you learn through living and doing it and, and trying to be wise. The tactical day-to-day, it's very easy to let healthy habits slip, things like physical exercise, sleep, nutrition. It's all the basics. We know it. But when you're in the hot seat, you, you make excuses for why you don't have time for that, that you need to do this, you need to do that. And often entrepreneurs are very high energy people. We're often manic, if, you know, if not literally, then metaphorically. Right. We have tremendous energy. As I was going into this. I felt strong. I felt capable. I had never felt so alive as leading this great humanitarian project. I was able to get by on not enough sleep and I was able to work from dawn till dusk and take care of my family and be a student. And I convinced myself it's okay. I don't need all these other healthy habits and boundaries. The, the subtle danger there is the damage accrues over the long term it doesn't hit you in a week it might hit you in six months and by then it's it's too late so I think from the beginning, keeping healthy daily routines, um, I think you know, there's a lot of other kind of tactics having a good morning routine of waking up and having time to start your day before you engage uh, same thing at night, how you unwind, how you shut down. Uh, I learned too late in the project not to check my email after about I don't know, 8 PM, because if I did something would blow up my night at eight or nine or 10 o'clock and I wouldn't sleep that night. I'd lay awake stressing and, and wondering and my mind would be going 300 miles an hour. So I think there's a lot of just wise things we can do. And then if you're a leader also trying to bring those disciplines to the people who work for you, one of the things I realized as someone who led volunteers, they were motivated by passion. They weren't going to sleep. They were going to do whatever I asked and because they were intrinsically motivated. So for me as a leader to like not throw things at them at nine o'clock at night or to encourage them to take a weekend off, those kind of things are, are, lead to a much healthier team and they give you more energy and more of an ability to run the marathon over the long term. So when I went on later to do a second type of startup, I tried to lead more from that place.
0: I think that's an excellent framework. I want to share two personal ways that to, that that I do in order to yeah. uh, in order to deal with this because perhaps for someone listening, uh, this uh, this might help because it's it's a hard problem because everyone knows it's healthy, you know, to not check it, me all this and this, but when your heart is in it and you're so into it, in it, uh, it, it it becomes hard. Here, here. Uh, to that, that that I personally adopt. First, about 20 years ago, I decided that I'm going to spend 90 minutes every single night of my life, no matter what, improving my writing. And my process that I decided then is to spend 45 minutes reading or rereading classic literature and 45 minutes writing for fun, like not for work. And by, like, by committing myself emotionally to that ritual, 20 years ago and doing it no matter what and the most stressful difficult moments for me it's become a form of catharsis because no matter how crazy intense things are i need to disconnect for that like i'm never going to bring that ritual no matter what that i that i need to uh, disconnect in order to force myself uh, uh, to to get uh, to, uh distracted a, uh, a second version is one that I only have to myself, but I, 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 should, I should do more of. But, I, I, but I, I do it enough, which is I'm a fan of the ancient Jewish wisdom to just uh, disconnect for one day a week, you know, the Sabbath. And what's powerful about that is everyone knows it's healthy to disconnect. That's why weekends exist. It's only good. But when there's so much pressure, so much to do, it's really hard to do this. But what's powerful about the, about the idea of Sabbath is it's the force of God behind it. If God says, you have to do this, like I'm, I'm doing it. So it's, it's like a best practice. But because it's given this, uh, this religious framing, it gives it so much more power to really, to really force you to disconnect, which forces your mind to disconnect and, and really goes a long way towards, uh, towards being able to set these sorts of boundaries.
1: Yeah, I love both of those. That's great. I, you know, on the Sabbath, I, I come from a religious, a religious background. Um, and, but I, would say the tradition I was raised in Protestantism, would never quite valued the Sabbath the same way that, uh, that uh, Jewish people have. And I've always had deep respect for that. Cause you meet people who truly observe a Sabbath, like the power that has, um, the closest I probably come is getting outdoors for a day, going out to the mountains. I do that fairly regularly and, and disconnect and to spend time in nature, and the writing I love, I, I wish I had, I love your word ritual. That's something I've tried to do because I love to write. I'm trying to be better about it. And I've never had that level you're at. So I really so admire the, that.
0: What's awesome about rituals is, is a ritual to, it, over time builds an almost godlike power and force mm-hmm. behind it. Because if you just say, oh yeah, I'm going to write, what happens is as soon as you're Drones are exploding. You're burning down Stanford. You're running out of funding, and the disasters are happening for for humans. Like, okay, tonight I'm not going to write. I have major challenges to do it. But right. when you have these deeply embedded rituals, it just forces this emotional disconnect, which which I find really helps with 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 these boundaries.
1: Yeah, I think that's huge, and I think there's something powerful. Use the word catharsis. I think that's helpful too, and. I think there's something about creative uh types of activities. You know a lot of leaders have had these like like Winston Churchill, you know, leading Great Britain through its darkest hour had oil painting was something he did and in the midst of the war with the bombs falling on London, you know, he would do things like this. And so
0: while, yeah. while he also wrote the history of the English speaking people <laughs> for which yeah. for which he got a Nobel Prize in writing and I'm like yeah. you're like Leading like leading the free world to save them while painting while writing the funniest best history of the whole Anglo-Saxon world. It's like it's it sounds like a fictional novel than something a human being can do. (laughs) True. Um, Okay, yeah. So uh, a funny distraction, but okay. So there's so I like mining your book for like like I want to continue on this question to click back on the browser for about five minutes before sure. the, the rituals a question about about think about think of what have you what could you have done differently let's say the yeah. lessons learned applied retrospectively so this first lesson is the power of healthy habits especially the boundaries which 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 we which we which we, d- which we dived into I'm wondering what what else you learned in here here's here's uh, I'll, I'll frame it more uh, more specifically there were a couple moments in reading you' are reading your book where I was like oh it's inter- it's interesting that that he dealt with it like this not like this so for a specific moment reader I'm <laughs> fast forward here if you don't want to know what happens I in, uh, in uh, one, one one moment in the book um, there was a moment where the where you Told the board you're going to close it down, and then the board was like, "No, sorry, you can't." And then you're like, "Okay, I'll like okay, I'll I'll keep it open." And to like to me, my instinct was, it's it felt weird and strange that when when the founder wants to close it down and everyone's burned out for the board for the board to force you to go because in, in in the situations where I've seen where where the key players all want to stop, but for external pressure, it doesn't. It turns into like a walking dead. Yeah. Uh, a, 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 a walking dead scenario. And when it's like the walking dead scenario, it's always better to just be dead.
1: <laughs> yeah. Right. So no, that's a great question. That was really like so that was like in the in the couple months after the fire, we were dead in the water. And I was agonizing over what do we do and and felt like I was making this brave decision to shut the organization down because I wanted to be decisive and on our terms and just wrap this thing up and we could get on with our lives. I didn't want, as you put it, the walking dead, you know, the zombie organization lingering. And you know, my mistake there was we were actually incorporated. We had a board of directors, it was not in my authority. To dissolve. But what I ended up doing was just shooting out an email saying, Hey, I've made the decision we're going to dissolve and actually notified some external stakeholders. And then the board was like, Whoa, you can't do this. So I just made some screw ups there, which came from inexperience. I'd never led a, an incorporated organization before. And, you know, having started in my garage, that the shift from that of me just doing stuff to having a board of directors and a governance structure was new. So there was a lot of just, you know, right. Rookie inexperience. What I probably should have done is gathered the board, let's talk about it, made a decision. Now, there's a broader issue here that might apply to other entrepreneurs, which is you're always in this world of uncertainty, and you don't know when things get hard. You don't know if you should keep pushing or if you should stop. And I've got a whole chapter in the book on, you know, when do you quit? That's something we don't talk about. We don't like the word quitting. And a lot of that has to do with risk. Well, what's the risk if we try doing this? If we keep pushing, when do we cut our losses? And this is maybe something I would do different that I just didn't know how to handle at the time. I saw all these negative trend lines happening that you know, we had a lot of success, but things are going off the rails. And my strong intuition was we're moving too fast and need to slow down. And, and this is before we got to that point of dissolution. Other people on the project and external supporters were like, no, things are going great when you've got to double down and keep pushing when things get tough and you've got one chance to go fundraise. You've got one chance to make this thing happen. You got to be bold. That word kept coming up, bold, and go do this. And I I had a decision to make. Do I trust my own intuition or do I listen to these other voices And I know my own weaknesses. I can be risk averse when I don't know how things are going to go. And I said, I'm going to trust these other voices. And I kind of went against my intuition. And then the same thing happened when we, you know, a few months later after the crowdfunding campaign with this decision you're talking about, do we dissolve? I want to dissolve. Other people are telling me, no, we want to keep trying. And I went against my intuition again. So it's hard to know what lesson to draw from that. One of mine is to stick to my intuitions and argue for them. But I also know that sometimes I am wrong. There was other times my intuition was to back off and other people challenged me to push harder and I did and it worked out. So I don't think there's a right answer other than to be very thoughtful and recognize these decisions and and don't avoid the hard truths. The hard truths were staring us in the face. One of the most challenging things as a leader is to get your team to look those things in the face and really talk about, like, what does that mean for us? Like, let's not minimize what's going on here. Like, this is the existential, you know, threat we're facing. How do we deal with this? Let's not shy away from it and, and have a very sober conversation about it.
0: Well, I I think, I, or it seems to me that there are a couple lessons that we could get out of just this this moment. One is, it's not that people's intuitions are always right some people have better intuitions than uh, than than other people or some moments your intuition is stronger is is more accurate than than, than other moments but it, but what it seems to me is what intuition always has is it's when you subconsciously realizes there's a huge problem that needs a change yeah and it, like like that's what intuition always has in common like before you consciously realize it so so what that means is when you feel intuition, maybe the intuition to just like send out the email and close it down wasn't right, but you have to take your, what is your intuition saying, and then really find a way to meditate on it, think about it, and turn that into a strategy. Maybe when you feel this gut kind of instinct, that's when you get an outside voice on it, for uh, for, for example, or maybe you set up some sort, uh, some sort of process in order to, to see, to see if it could lead to a change. But like, I'm, I'm, I'm a big believer in listening to intuition, but rather than just doing what your intuition says, strategizing based on what your intuition says.
1: Yeah. That's a really good insight. Um, I went on to lead a second software development team later, uh, a couple of years after this. And, uh, I practiced that in maybe a different way. I often felt fear. There was always like some threat and I was always worried about things and anxious about things. So I had to kind of learn to deal with anxiety. Leading that team, I had learned a lot. It went much better, but like I've got all these anxieties, which is a kind of intuition sometimes. And I had to do exactly that. Like, let's take this phantom, vague, nebulous anxiety and write it down on paper, and then just analytically <coughs> ask myself, what does this mean? What am I actually afraid of? What are the concerns? What are the mitigation strategies? You're right, that's that's very powerful.
0: Thank you, so, so that that's one lesson. Another lesson is, um, is this. You said that some of the advice that you had gotten was be bold. In fact, I remember, sorry, I have, to have an awesome memory. So, uh, so I remember how you said that in your book, which is, you're influenced by the work of Peter Diamantes and whose who's mantra is be bold. And you even said, you repeated it three times. It was like, who said be bold, be bold, be bold. I like the, the, the triple uh, emphasis. So what's interesting about that is when your thought and strategies are so influenced by someone else, like you explicitly talk about Diamantis' influence, it often becomes hard to separate out what you want and what's best for you from these really smart people who are giving you advice. Hey, Peter Diamantis is really smart. Be bold is in general great advice, but like with any general advice that you would read in a book, it's different in every situation, every person. Some moments have to be bolder, uh, bolder than, uh, than, than than other moments. So I think another lesson is is when you unwind why why you feel these things and this piece, this piece of advice to think about where the other advice comes from and then think about how like about the qualifications and how the, the applicability. like you can't always be bold, like there, there are times for, of boldness, there are times for tranquility as well. Yes,
1: yeah, that's so true. I feel like for any principle that you want to throw on the table, you could probably come up with the exact opposite principle. Uh, one example, you know, Winston Churchill again: "Never, never, or you know, never, never, never give up." And on the other hand, you got sayings like "You got to quit while you're ahead." You got to know when to cut your losses. So uh, you can you can oh. have this tension for almost anything, where wisdom comes in is knowing what to apply when and to your point about you know reading these books and being influenced one thing i do worry about is we have a whole cottage industry of books feeding a message of going out and pursuing with everything you have unstoppable be unstoppable go be a badass go be bold launch your moonshot and if you keep failing then just keep trying and you'll succeed and all good things i love those books I spent a lot of time reading those books, but in some ways they misled me because I probably was not very wise about how I applied that. I probably pushed too hard and didn't have enough countervailing wisdom about things like, um, you know, just just the the pragmatics of of building a, a scrappy little organization and making it sustainable and not burning people out. And. T- really testing our value proposition to ensure, is it, are we building the right thing? Is this going to solve the problem we think it is? There's, and there's a whole, maybe more pragmatic side of, of running a business or an effort that you need, a, you need a range of advice. And uh, in my eagerness to someday be an entrepreneur, I had only consumed maybe one half of the equation. And when things really fell apart, I also had no idea where to turn because we don't have a lot of support for that side of things. When, when things are falling apart, how do you lead? When your organization ends and you're just sort of adrift afterwards, what do you do? Uh, that's where you really need a lot of wisdom that's, that's not always talked about. So you got to be careful of the selection bias in the books that are out there.
0: I actually just realized something listening to you now. Before I hit record and we started this, this podcast, I was telling you about how an aspect of your book that I appreciate is that one of the subtexts is um, your internal struggle with um, the religion you were, uh, you were brought up in. And what's interesting is it is all these books that you just alluded to, these self-help books that are inspirational, like you can do it, you can succeed. There's an interesting parallel to like the corpus of religious texts like both like there's just like these industries of I uh, and, and don't don't mean this necessarily negatively, i'm trying and like trying to be neutral and dispassioned here uh, but there are these industries in both cases that are that just try to tell you that redemption is right there <laughs> you just have to do these like really really intense things with your whole heart and soul and crazy and you will be redeemed. You will be saved when, when the, when the reality is, is these things are lotteries and right. guess what? <laughs> like almost everyone loses the lottery.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, that's so true. And you think about these industries, they exist to tell people what they want to hear, right? If you're a book publisher, um, you know, you're going to sell books telling you how to go Go succeed and achieve your dreams, and there's a place for that for sure. But it does create a danger, yeah. When we're we're trying to tell people what they want to hear, and it's it is almost like a civic religion in a sense in this country of the the inspirational go go pursue your dreams. And um, I'm a believer in that, but also again be wise about it and um, recognize where the where that meets reality.
0: I mean, the, I mean, I want to dive into that first thing because it it comes to the heart of of some of these challenges. The American religion is you two can be president. The real, the reality is there's is no universe under which I could have been president of the United States. So there's so I was taught my my parents told me when I was a little boy if I really want to be president I can be, but nope <laughs> that's that, that's really not that's really not how the system works. So um, I mean and what's interesting is there are other very similar industries where people realize it's a lot of, like music. Everyone knows if you start a garage band, you're probably not going to be the next Beatles. Um, but so you do the garage band, have fun. But there's but very few people actually really think that they're going to be the Beatles. Most <laughs> garage band, you, you yeah. do it for a couple of years in high school or college, and then it becomes like a Sunday hobby or um, or something. But in the in Silicon Valley land, like like it's everyone believes that yes my company is going to be the next Facebook.
1: Right. Well, yeah. And I feel like to use your example, once you accept the reality, it kind of frees you up to enjoy things more. If you were out in your garage with your guitar, frustrated to no end that you're not making it, you know, being a celebrity, you're going to be miserable. Yeah. But if you can just love what you're doing and go jam with your friends, it it kind of frees you up. And, you know, you brought up writing. I've dealt with that with writing because I love to write and I've never quite, quote, made it, and it can be very demoralizing. And at some point I have to just accept that, you know what? I love this and I enjoy it. I'm going to keep doing it regardless of where it leads. And uh, if you're starting a company or an entrepreneurial effort, it can be the same thing, that you want this thing to succeed. You're going to take it as far as it goes, but you may learn to be happy and content with you know, the marginal contributions. My, my effort failed in the sense that we did not deliver aid in Syria, but we ignited a conversation that hadn't really happened before about, well, how could you use humanitarian drones in conflict zones? It was discussed in UN meetings and nonprofits were involved. And, you know, I, a lot of the people on my team went on to go do other work. Uh, one of my, uh, volunteers is helping get Afghans out of Afghanistan right now. She's organizing cargo flights. Like we planted seeds and this is a big theme in my book is like, If you can just set this thing in the proper context and love it and enjoy it and, and not put everything on this, this moonshot success home run, there's plenty of little wins along the way that you can kind of cherish and enjoy and just watch those seeds being planted and bloom in ways you never expected. Um, just like if you've got that garage band, you're going to make friendships and people are going to go off and have life experiences that, you know, your, your lives have been enriched by what you did.
0: Yeah, that uh that makes make sense being present in a moment is both surprisingly powerful and surprisingly hard to do yes it is and another moment in the book that that I want to talk about because it was um because it was it was also surprising and might be something else to have done differently in retrospect was your decision to organize it as a nonprofit, which yep. you even, at some point in the book you even call it out. You say that a bunch of people around you said, "Oh, it would be much easier to raise money for this if 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 this were structured as um as a as a for profit." Perhaps I drink too much of the Silicon Valley Kool Aid, so my my instinct is, oh, well, even if the goal is to do good, you can get much easier access to capital and uh, etc. in, in a classic, in a classic startup, uh, structure, as opposed to a, a, um, a nonprofit structure. So me, so in retrospect, like, um, what do you, what do you think about, um, about going this path for that path?
1: Yeah. So that's, that's a great question. Um, I think we did the best we could under the constraints, but let's unpack that. I'm a military officer. I was still on active duty yes, while I was at Stanford. That's right. that's- I, I never had the ability to quit my day job to go run a company. So this was always something that was kind of shoehorned into weekends and evenings. And I, I was never going to be able to go spend my days quoting <laughs> investors. So we were, we were sort of necessarily scrappy. Also, we were trying to actually access war zones, doing things only governments and militaries could endorse. What I envisioned was this becoming a military capability, just like the military could go deliver, you know, pallets with a C-17, we could deliver, you know, a bunch of drone teams and drones and go do this. So I was just trying to create a temporary home for this idea to prove that it could work and then find some way to on-ramp it in the military, which doesn't really have an analogy in the private sector. Uh, Now, had we gone a for-profit, let's just say we'd solve that leadership problem, a lot of things we did didn't make sense. Like when we, when we discussed this with people at Stanford's Graduate School of Business, we explained what we were doing and they would, they would say things like, you are all over the value chain from top to bottom. Like, why are you talking about building your own drones, flying them, training crews, delivering cargo? Like each one of those could be its own company. Um, we were just trying to solve an immediate problem of just let's get stuff into Syria. And because none of those companies existed, that infrastructure didn't exist yet, we kind of had to own the whole stack. I felt like so it just was it was a, it was just too messy and new of a space to really be a viable company in a very short time frame. Um, but yes, you're right. Like really, what this points to is sustainability. For this idea to really become sustainable, it, it would need a a sustainable organizational structure that could have been getting folded into the military. But but frankly, a company is more sustainable than a nonprofit or a lot of other other things. And if we're gonna generalize a lesson there, from the beginning, we knew we had a sustainability problem. I had three years at Stanford and then I was gonna go back to the Air Force and couldn't have any time to do this again. And I was kind of the nexus of everything. Like there was this team wouldn't have outlived my leadership very easily. And we were sort of hoping we would find some way to transition this to somebody and make it sustainable later. So there was magical thinking from the beginning that let's just kick that can down the road and we'll solve it later. And that caught up with us sooner than we wanted to admit. And having to grapple with the fact there's no real solution within reach for this. So anyone who's starting a venture, you gotta be really careful about that magical thinking. Like you don't have to solve all your problems right away, but if you don't have a a business plan that makes sense, uh, and you, or, you know, you're not sustainable like that probably is your number one priority is to figure that out. And I just kind of denied that reality until it was too late.
0: That's, uh, avoiding my dual thinking is, um, is an awesome lesson. Let's continue diving into because it's, it's interesting. A point you just mentioned a, a moment ago that I also remember in the book was that, you started this as a nonprofit, but you realized that for it to succeed, eventually the military would need to absorb it. And then you have um, a page or so in your book talking about that, about about the military's failure to absorb it or their lack of interest in, uh, in, in making it happen, And we're, and having worked with some private companies that are crazy bureaucracies it feels it feels like the it's the same challenge of trying to motivate or get a bureaucracy to do something differently and and something i've learned is that's near impossible possibly impossible uh, uh to do so i was i was curious for some color and some lessons. On on trying to get the military bureaucracy to uh, to, to change, and if there's if, if in retrospect you should have or could have approached the military in a different way to have made it more more excited uh, or more possible to, yeah. uh, to support this.
1: So this is where I spend a lot of my time now. Still being a military officer, and I'm actually a professor who teaches innovation in the military. So this is my wheelhouse, and I think trying to innovate inside a large organization is so different that it needs its own words and its own way of thinking. So I like the word intrapreneur, which isn't commonly used, but to refer to someone who does the kinds of things an entrepreneur does, but inside an organization of creating new products and services and fighting for their adoption.
0: But By the way, I just have to say, I own the domain intrapreneur.com. Perfect. 20 years ago, I owned it. At some point, I let it expire. Who knows? Who uh who knows who uses a body or uses it today, but I'm like, oh wow, I went to that.com.
1: That's great. Yeah. I've I've been I've been trying to do some writing on that. I've got some stuff on my website, which is at markdjacobson.com. But but anyway, I think I think the key difference is, you know, a lot of people who are entrepreneurs go read all the entrepreneurial books and listen to the speakers and watch the TED Talks because that's what's out there. And they try and just carry that in. To their organization, but the rules are different. You don't you don't get adoption because you have a great idea. You can't just take it out to the market and let the market decide. In a large organization, ideas get adopted through the bureaucracy. Resources get allocated through the bureaucracy. Decisions get made somewhere in the bureaucracy. Even getting manpower, uh, your own manpower, your own hours, is a decision made by the by the bureaucracy. So learning to be an effective entrepreneur means learning the rules of the game inside your organization. It means learning who controls resources. Who do I have to convince? Who do I pitch to? If, if I've got a prototype doing well, how do I get that noticed at higher levels? Who has the authority to create a new division of the company or create a new, you know, adopt this is a new product Who's got the ability to program out labor? So I have a team working on it. um, Who can approve experiments? um, All these questions, and they're very different, you know, in every organization. So the effective entrepreneur becomes, I think, kind of an insurgent where you're down, you know, doing ninja tricks at the bottom of the pyramid to kind of find your way up to champions at the right levels who can help this thing get a shot. And it, it takes a very carefully balanced attitude. On the one hand, you've got to be that insurgent who's willing to, to do things different and you know, operate around the edges of how the company normally works, but you also have to be very loyal. You've got to show that you're the kind of person who has the, the organization's best interests at heart, that you're a professional, that you're competent, they can trust you to do your day job. That's how you sort of get the trust and the access to higher levels to adopt your ideas. I've done that pretty well in the military. I think like I had the respect of the Air Force while I was doing this. My work got briefed to the chief of staff of the Air Force, the very top general in the Air Force. And he gave it a thumbs up. He's like, this is awesome. Keep at it, we need innovators. The problem was that didn't translate into any resources, <coughs> was was a verbal praise. I was very naive about the realities of what it takes to get resources and get ideas adopted um, I just there was no way from the beginning probably that would have happened. Um, I learned a lot more about that later with my second team, the software development team, which was inside DOD, and I became a lot more effective there as I kind of learned those rules of the game. Um, and then at a personal level, if you're inside an organization, you're you're often very frustrated. You're you're imprisoned by this this bureaucracy that just makes everything hard. So there's, there's kind of at a personal level of taking care of your own health is learning to take a deep breath and not let the organization get to you, um, which is kind of a different skill set or a different maybe requirement than like an entrepreneur faces who's got a lot of autonomy and freedom. Your battles are more off, you know, getting money and whatever, but um, it's just a different operating environment.
0: Um, those, are, uh, those, are, those, are, those are great lessons. I would say for a lot of the, the people listening, all three of you. Hi, <laughs> hi mom. Um, dealing with the bureaucracy, it's has a whole other level of, of difference because the, the entrepreneurs, you're inside the bureaucracy, but then there's like the external vendor or external contractor right. who's trying to who's trying to deal with the bureaucracy and it becomes even harder because yeah. you're not on the inside. And not being on the inside, you don't have access to the information or the people or really, or really know what's happening. And it's a whole other can of worms in order to figure that out.
1: That's a great point. My last job in government, I was working with private sector companies and I kind of had all the cards of being in government because I had the trust of being inside and, and having that information. But I saw the frustration on the private sector side of trying to do business with government where they were trying to figure out the rules from the outside. And yeah, there's probably a lot of analogies to that. And then another thing we didn't really talk about is like social change. If you're out you know, leading a, I don't know, an environmental movement some, or something or whatever the case might be, you're, you're trying to create social change. You are trying to persuade or influence actors that you're not necessarily a part of. It's a whole nother world of how you create change.
0: Yeah, I agree um those those are the questions that i had thought of when i when i read the book last night that that, that i wanted to ask um to wrap up stepping back uh now, now that we've now that we've had the conversation first i i do want to say i can't stop myself from saying i'm happy to have proved to you i actually did read the book with my, <laughs> with my uh, calling of specific uh, details
1: yeah.
0: and um but um but Wrapping up something back, are there any other lessons or insights or, fi- or final points that, that you would like to make or perhaps uh, re- re- repeat and uh, emphasize to conclude today's podcast?
1: I would just say in conclusion, for people who are wanting to lead a bold moonshot type project, like by all means, go do it. But, but from the beginning, take care of yourself, pace for a marathon, take care of your people and find part of your identity and your happiness outside the project. Uh, try and, and love the project and give it everything while at the same time holding it at a distance. Uh, I think that's maybe the, the biggest takeaway I took from how to lead something like this. Um, and then I'll, I'll just say, we didn't talk about it as much, but for those who have gone through a failure where something you have given your heart to comes down you're looking for, for guidance, I'll just offer up uh, a last mention to my book, Eating Glass, the Inner Journey through Failure and Renewal. Um, there's not a lot of resources like for those situations and that's really what I wrote it for was especially those people. Um, but but just embrace the lessons, you know, do the work to face that and grow through it, and that's how we, we become wiser and better for the next time around.
0: And this this is why we're talking today where even though, this podcast is uh targeted a little bit differently. It's about horror stories and a and a horror story fundamentally That's is true. is about is is about a a fell fail, a failed experience, which is why a, a lot of the different lessons that, that we've spoken about from the set boundaries and the dealing self-emotionally to practically dealing, dealing dealing with dealing with uh, bureaucracies and, and so on applies um uh, applies in, in both situations absolutely uh, mark it was great it was great to have you on i uh, hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as i both enjoyed it and enjoyed reading your book
1: as well oh, it was wonderful thanks for having me i appreciate it
0: and everyone listening thank you for watching thank you for watching love and, uh, and listening and until next time Woo!